Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 53. Observe what the land gives you for free. How the land uses the water that's on it, where it stores it, where the grass grows. That'll help you. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. On today's show, we have Taylor Moyer of Ridgeview Land and Cattle. We talk about his journey to his present-day farm and what they're doing on their farm. It's a very valuable discussion. I think you'll really enjoy it. We'll talk about his Angus cows and what he's doing. And then for the overgrazing section, we cover bell grazing in North Carolina. And for the famous four, you'll have to stay tuned and listen to his answers there. Before we talk to Taylor, let's do 10 seconds about my farm. Lambing is coming to an end pretty quickly. I think over the weekend, I had two lambs have twins each. That's really slowed down, and the cows have started calving. I've been wondering when that's going to happen. I'm looking to the future, so I don't spend too much time on We're kind of dry, but we should be getting rain this week. Uh, next week, I'm going to the Greg Judy Advanced Grazing School, so I'm excited for that. And the week after, I'm going to a grazing workshop in Adair, Oklahoma, hosted by Bell Rule Genetics. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Well, Taylor, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here. Thank you. I, uh, I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Taylor, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Sure. My name is uh, Taylor Moyer. Um, 35 years old. Uh, I bought my operation. I bought my own farm when I in 2018. My farm, I should say, our farm. My wife and my farm is called Ridgeview Land and Cattle, and that's kind of homage to Ridgeview Cattle Company, where I grew up in Vermont. Actually, my parents they owned a a beef cattle operation and uh, apple orchards. Um, which is kind of the culmination of the agriculture on both sides of my family. Um, my mom's side of the family uh, owns a orchard called Battleview Orchards in New Jersey, which has been in our family since 1905, I believe. It's on the fifth generation, and my aunt and uncle and cousin and his wife own and operate it. It's very successful. And my dad's side of the family owns Okmulgee Dairy, which is the oldest dairy farm in the state of Virginia. Uh, it's been in the family since 1895, and it as well is on its fifth generation, which is my cousin's operating. Um, I have a long lineage of agriculture in my family. My great-grandfather, uh, Leslie Norman Applegate, was the first ever national president of FFA. So it's it's in me, uh, for sure. My parents met at Virginia Tech, both getting agriculture degrees, and uh, moved to Vermont. Had had me and my little brother and, and raised us on apples and beef cattle. Um the apple orchard kind of phased out when I was in fourth grade, so most of my his most of my memory of growing up was showing cows, playing sports, and growing up on a, our beef cattle operation, which was like a, a brood herd. Um, we'd get anywhere from four to six hundred yearling or stocker cattle in through the growing season, uh, and then we had some direct consumer meat sales as well. Um, my farm is in North Carolina, outside of Charlotte, where I reside. And uh, we prim- we are primarily at the moment cow calf, and I say at the moment because we are we try we are trying to keep some of our herd very liquid and match it to our carrying capacity of our land and our our um, our farm. Um, so we I do believe in a certain type of genetics and we work on that hard. But we we've we've had as many cows as eighty at our place and all the way down to. You know, less than 20 at times uh, when forage wasn't available. So I could go in as deep into our operation as you would like, but um, that's the gist of it, and that's that's the gist of me. Oh, very good. We will we will dive into that a little bit deeper. Anytime someone says genetics, my ears perk up. Sure. So we we'll have to get there. Now, interesting enough, I think you said your parents met at Virginia Tech. Yep. And then they. They w- went back to Vermont. So it wasn't a back to Vermont. Nobody, nobody in my family had ever lived in Vermont. Um, Vermont's got a very—they're ahead of its time with uh, 
with selling conservation easements on land. So for my whole life, I remember big pieces of farmland having the development rights sold, which kept the, uh, to my to my childhood memory, kept the land values at a price in which agriculture could compete. And I know that's a... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I actually have friends of mine younger than me from high school who were able to, out of college, you know, work hard and buy, buy farms and not have to compete with um, development prices and real estate prices. So... I think my parents just found an opportunity in a place where they had probably only ever skied before, but oh, yes. it was a great place to grow up. The west side of Vermont, the uh, the Champlain Valley where I grew up, is nothing but big. It's 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 just apple orchards and dairy farms. Really, it's gorgeous. It's where the ski mountains roll for a couple, like say, twenty miles to the edge of Lake Champlain, which divides Vermont and New York, and it's it is a gorgeous place um, and a great place to grow up. I'm very blessed to grow up there. I'm I'm sure it is, and that sounds pretty great. Yeah. Now, so you ended up in North Carolina. How did you get there? Well, that's the other side of me. I'm I'm actually a uh, crew chief in NASCAR, and I race professionally every weekend. So, this is the place to be if you're going to race. Um, when I left the day after I graduated high school, I thought I'd never shovel shovel cow manure again, and I drove my truck down to Charlotte, <laughs> North Carolina. Um, I got my mechanical engineer, engineering degree from UNC Charlotte and uh, worked for race teams through college. Um, but I realized very quickly that uh, a rural lifestyle and cattle in general were kind of a part of me and what um, it's what I like to do in my spare time and kind of what soothes me. Um, my nine to five job is a not a nine to five. It's more of a five to nine and it's at an extreme rapid pace and um what started as just saving up to have some land um, turned into a how do I best utilize this land? And I kind of got to relearn agriculture in my own time and space, you know, since I own the farm and there's no pressure from my family. There, you know, there's all the guidance I could ever want, but there's nobody pressuring right. me to do it a certain way. I dove back in and I dove back in pretty hard with my pencil and calculator. Um, and it, I firmly believe. I'm doing a disservice to my own family and friends in the farming industry if I'm willing to lose money doing it. Um, I think I'm just driving the market down. So I very diligently make sure that I know where all my numbers are and uh, run the business as a business and don't willingly just lose money in a hobby uh, um, just because I think it hurts as much as it could be a hobby for sure. And I could see spending a bunch of unnecessary money on it. But at the end of the day, I have a lot of friends in this industry. It's where I feel most comfortable. It's the people I feel most comfortable around, and I'm only doing them a disservice if I don't don't try to do it legitimately. So, my other job certainly is what paid for the land, but I charge my I, I run my enterprises separately. I have a land holding enterprise, and then I have a, a livestock enterprise, and I I charge my livestock enterprise you know fair market rent for this area to my land enterprise to make sure everything is on the up and up. Very good. And you're covering that sustainability point right there. If you're not making a profit, your farm's not sustainable. And it's only going to be here as long as you can fund it some other way. So excellent on doing that. And that's an interesting viewpoint on your land management. Um, you've got that separated in your enterprises, which I think is great. But what brought you to that decision? Uh, I think... I think all those decisions I'd have to back up. My mom's an accountant, and um, oh. even 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 through 4-H and and showing cows, my parents were for. Uh, it's probably the best. It was a pain in the butt when I was young, but it's probably the best lessons <laughs> I had for finance uh, growing up. Um, and as well as my grandpa, my grandfather's both are. The farms don't last that long, and you know, and go through that many generations without being good business people. And those were those kind right. of instilled in me. I did attend ranching for profit. Uh, and oh, I've, yes. I've been of that mindset and I got to attend last year, which was, was great. And it gave me a, a structure to really put numbers to paper. But I think, I mean, I, I am frugal by nature. Maybe that's just the farmer in me, right? Like <laughs> I don't, so. yeah, right. sure. I, you know, we could, so I don't know, uh, that, that tactic I use just to evaluate really whether or not I should be running my own cows on my land or I'd be better suited to rent it all out to somebody else or or rent it to somebody to row crop. And those are all things I 
you know, I put in my equation to, to think about. Well, it's excellent you have it set up. And yeah, my my dad, while he wasn't an accountant, he has a degree in accounting. And um, all those things I heard all my life, I should do a better job. But I, I do have a foundation there where I understand a few things. Now, when you, you purchased that land in 2018, what was your first thing to do on on your new newly purchased land? So luckily, even though it was newly purchased, and well, it's funny, I actually had this in my advice because it was advice I'd gained from somebody. I want to say kind of what led me back to farming was that I grew up on a big farm with a very agrarian lifestyle and knew no different as far as even what we ate in the house. You know, we ate beef that we had butchered and my mom grew a big garden and put vegetables by and stuff. And then I moved to a more metropolitan area and started probably living a more standard American lifestyle. And I found myself just kind of unhealthy, gaining weight. You know, I'm also becoming an adult and going from being a teenager who's got endless metabolism to whatever. And I started down kind of healthy food paths and it led me right back to farming, which is where I, I believe healthy food starts. Um, with that, you know, I was introduced to Will Harrison, to Joel Salatin, to Greg Judy, to all those guys. But one thing that Joe Sal- Joel Salatin has always said that I took to heart, and I'm glad I did when I first purchased that piece of land. Well, first and foremost, I purchased the piece of land because it's proximity to Charlotte, North Carolina. It was a, probably a good real estate investment. Um, and I had been in that community for nine years before somebody even told me that piece of land was for sale. It's a very tight-knit community. And... You know, that's the great thing about the community I'm in. There is a little bit of guardedness against housing developments. And and, and Charlotte's been a a growing city for years. So I thought it was a good investment, no matter whether I ran cows or not. It would be a place to hunt, recreate. But I do remember somebody, I'm pretty sure it was South, and said, just observe the land. You know, before you start sticking fences everywhere, just observe and see what the land gives you for free. And it's funny because I did just recently, last year, do a large fencing uh, infrastructure project, fencing and water. And had I put some stuff where I would have initially, it would have been washed away by, I have three creeks on the farm. It would have been gone by now. You know, I had to stand back, see what nature gave me for free, see how the land uh, worked, I would guess, how water flowed, what places had grass year round, which places didn't have, and, and just do a lot of observation and that is what I did. I got to observe a lot and I initially had income from the land because there was already cows there from some people I knew and I didn't oh, okay. kick I didn't kick them out. I just took them on almost as partners and that allowed me to grow my herd along with their herd. We ran them as one herd um, and and share responsibilities. I was the land owner probably and the herd manager and the day laborer. Um, but they would they would help me out a lot in that um, they would feed like that was my hay source for the winter when we were feeding hay. They would feed that hay. Obviously, with my my other job, I'm gone every weekend. They were always there if needed something. So that's how we operated for the beginning. It allowed me to not rush into anything, so I didn't have to make any huge huge mistakes. I could kind of learn as I went, and I'm very grateful for that. But that's kind of what we started with with the land. And, and, and we've always taken a lot of photos, which is interesting. I have a photo of the first day I bought it. And I look back at that photo a lot because you wouldn't even be able to tell it's the same. So that's how it started. That is great. And to jump on that photos bit, I've often thought, I think Ranching for Profit, they talk about some how to do some photos so you can see progress over time. Absolutely. Um, and and I think that's so good. I haven't figured out a system for here. I haven't done it. I haven't gone to ranching for profit yet. I was wanting to this year um, because there's a school fairly close to me, but I've kind of committed to too much else. So I'm going to have to put that on the back burner. Gotcha. So hopefully I get to one soon. But getting pictures of your land so you can see that progress because you think, oh, I'll remember this. I can't remember what I had for supper last night. How am I going to remember how the pasture looked? So getting those pictures, I think, that document that journey you're on is so wonderful. Yeah, the the soil health and the land health part of it for me is just as big as the cattle. Um, I, I enjoy recreating in the outdoors. I love to hunt. Um, and it's funny. It's I use the pictures 
the most in times when I'm frustrated where I don't feel like I'm making progress. I'm very much a planner oh, yes. and a progress guy. And I can always go back through my pictures and be like, actually, no, never mind. I forgot it looked this bad. I'm doing okay. <laughs> like, you know, it's a pat oh, on the yeah. back. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to have some positive affirmation in your life in some form. You do. So you got the land, you, you got the cattle, and you kind of observed. Now, you mentioned earlier that you had the cattle owners or you all formed a partnership and they help um, tend to your animals when you're gone with the races. But you said that's the way it used to be. Are you still having help on the weekends when you're gone or how are you managing that? So we finally got to the point where my portion of the herd was large enough that uh, economically it didn't make sense for either of us anymore. Um, and we probably had a little different goals and they're still very good friends of mine. You know, it was a good partnership all the way around. We were always very open with each other. At the end of the day, after I got to a certain amount of cattle, it just, it didn't make, you know, if I was increasing my size, the land could only hold too much. So we were decreasing their right. size. It economically didn't make sense anymore. But they're still very helpful if I ever need anything. But no, so we operate. Um, we have some part-time help. Uh, a big part of our vision and mission is we really believe in community. And I have a, a younger gentleman across the road. I have two little, I wouldn't say little boys. I have two teenage boys that work for me. One's a cow and water checker. One's a lawnmower. <laughs> yes. um, they're kind of like uh, little brothers to me. Uh, we actually put some automation in the farm. I can tell at any time that the cows make sure they have water. We have um, some pretty cheap off-the-shelf uh, cell cameras for deer that shine on all the water troughs. Now we do rotationally graze, so it's only one trough at a time. So I get a picture on my phone every 12 hours. Uh, I have all part of my infrastructure project was putting in um, some ball water. So I can tell if the balls are floating, I've got pressure in my system. Um, I have a little bit of automation. We have a farm uh, a farm office there, and so it's got Wi-Fi. So I have some automation to make sure that the fence is on, um, electric fence is on. So I've used uh, I've used technology in my mind in the right way to make sure that those cows, you know, have everything that I feel that I should provide. I do not prop my cows yes. up at all. They get clean water, mineral, and good grass, and the rest they better do themselves, or they can find another farm to live on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you with that. And I'm kind of, we may cover that automation a little bit more in a minute, but let's talk about, you mentioned your waters last year and you said you had a big infrastructure that you project last year with fencing water. What'd you do last year? Sure. So when I bought the place, the whole thing was perimeter fenced and barbed wire, which is, is fine. Um, but I, I lacked a little flexibility and it was my goal. I actually grew up rotationally grazing stalker cattle with my dad and it just that oh, was yes. the, that was the norm to me it wasn't any there's nothing abnormal about that um i didn't know any different so my dad was probably a kind of ahead of his time in that and i knew i knew the benefits it, it could give the land kind of firsthand so i wanted to get back to that in a way um so to do that i needed to bring some electricity onto the farm and I have a, I have two creeks that run into the farm and they run into one creek and they make a pretty big main artery. Um, and in the Southeast, we do fight some heat in the summer and I didn't love the cows being in those creeks. It just turned it into, you know, they would get sore feet. The, the, the creeks would just become a cesspool. Um, I, the, they, they were eroding the banks pretty bad. So I did use some cost share money, uh, with the state to, fence the cows out of the creeks and along with that uh came you know having to put in some pressurized waters to you know get use a different water source i went through all those steps i had very mixed emotions about about using cost share money but i went through a lot of i i really wrote a lot of the pros and cons down and um i could tell the people in my county were really excited to help somebody younger in agriculture and not just see all the money go to the big row croppers um but that's what i did so it's it's three pressurized water pads. Uh, I'm an engineer. They seem a little overbuilt. You know, I've got <laughs> 20 by 20 concrete pads. And then I have some really nice high tensile fence that fence the main creek right up the center of the farm, fence the cows out of that creek. But that really allows me to use, you know, we just use O'Brien reels, nine strand poly braid. And I have basically have a main electrical artery right up the middle of the farm to, to subdivide the farm and, and, any type of way I want. So that's that's really what we use. 
another portion of that is, you know, we use O'Brien step-ins and some reels. And then re just recently, we got some bat latches, not not by the bat latch brand. There's a newer brand. I don't mind giving the guy's name because the product works really well. But Teeter Farm Tech is a guy that did some cool engineering and used, I think, a lawn sprinkler timer and some SLA to make very affordable bat latches so the cows can move themselves when I'm not there if I set them right. I've looked at all my gate openers before. I've never uh, strongly considered them. And we have had past guests on, maybe Jose in like episode five. I think he was using them quite a bit, and we've had a couple others. But sitting here talking to you, you know, you make a very good point about your labor and stuff. I have a farm that's like five miles from me that I've got to drive out there and put yep. up a fence. Or, or I try and build the paddocks on the weekend, so i got to go over and open a gate and move them through. And, and I've, I enjoy that time to see them. But, you know, once in a while, I'm rushed. Tonight, uh, I got home from work and um, checked cattle, then tended to sheep, and we're in the middle of lambing right now. So that took longer. I grabbed yep. a bite to eat and hopped on here with you. So, you know, some days those hours get kind of thin. Yeah, absolutely. I try to keep accurate records of how much I spend a lot of time in my cow's free time because it's what I do and enjoy. But right. I, to, to scale the business and making making it a real business, I want to know what does it actually take? Like I keep this as enjoyment time and this is what the job actually takes. Oh, separate. yes. Just to know, you know, just to know, because a lot of those overheads... If I open that gate for 10 cows versus 1,000 cows, it's no different. It's the same amount of time, exactly. right? So that's, that factors into the scaling of it all. It, it does. And talking about your records there, are you using a spreadsheet? I'm, that's what my first assumption is. But, or what are you using to keep track of this information? Uh, different records. So I do use Google Sheets for about everything. With my other job, I can be on the go all the time and keep track. We keep a big grazing chart. Uh, on the wall of the farm office so everybody can use it but yeah generally i use google sheets and spreadsheets i'm pretty skilled in excel just by the nature of my other job so it's very familiar to me and it, i like to oh, yes. i like to do calculations once and make it so it's a worksheet so i can just go back and fill in numbers so a humorous side story on that i love spreadsheets i, I can i can get lost in a spreadsheet so that tells you a lot about me but I'm re I'm gaining some more responsibilities at work, and the guy who retired he gave me these spreadsheets. So I I looked at him. I thought, oh, I gotta automate a lot of this, and I'll get that automated. But I was going through his calculations and stuff. He was hand calculating everything on his spreadsheet. Oh, he didn't know you could put in functions. I guess I guess I did a poor job of showing him that he could do that because yeah. I'm like, oh man, I should have helped him with that. I should have known. I should have got in there and said, hey, you can do this. It'll save you some time. But that's that's kind of interesting. Yeah. So your your grazing chart. Tell us a little bit about your grazing chart on the the wall. Sure. So I um I'm using a grazing chart I bought straight from Ranching for Profit. I've used some. I've had some Excel templates as well and used them in the past. I like the big one on the wall with the Sharpie because my wife can see it as well. And anybody that comes to the farm, it's, you have your theoretical on the top, but a grazing chart uh, is the year, the, the days of the month and all the months and columns. Yeah, columns and all your pastures or paddocks in rows. You know, I forward project to where I think I'll be based off, you know, last year's weather patterns or whatever. And then I keep track of where I actually go. And I started doing it last year because it's how I really can track improvements on the land. And when I say improvements, some of them aren't on the grazing chart, right? Your actual soil health of what, what you see when you stick a shovel in the ground wouldn't be on there. But I can certainly track if I'm getting more stock days per acre out of my ground, which could be an improvement as long as I'm not overgrazing. Another improvement could be we track a lot of things all the way down to how many stock days per acre per one inch of rainfall that we get to really, oh, yes. yeah, to really nail down. Now I don't have a long enough history of this, but we do get a pretty good, we, we get a pretty good, it's been a pattern since I've owned the farm that we get a pretty good micro drought. And I say micro drought because what the people throughout the West and a lot of my friends in ne Nebraska and Montana and Wyoming went through the last two years, that was a drought. 
with the high clay content of our soil, we're always two weeks away from a drought where the soil just hardens off and, and you're done. Where a lot of people's grass grows dormant in the winter, our grass really goes dormant in that in the summer. Like it just gets so hot. So oh, yes. that kind of helps me plan for those drought periods and make sure I have enough forage stockpiled or, or I need to liquidate some of the herd if I want to match or bring in some hay. Just helps me forward project and plan. But it's it's literally just a big laminated chart on the wall with the months and days in rows. Or sorry, columns and then your pastures in rows. And um I I really feel like and I use this and use this term a lot in my other career, that you can't manage what you don't measure. So last year it was just a measuring tool and now I get to now I get to manage or look at this year against last year and really look back and see if I made things better or worse and you know, it's just, it's not so much subjective. It's pretty objective. Those numbers don't lie. So, you know, and that's the area I need to improve. I keep a grazing record on a spreadsheet, just pretty simple, but so I can monitor cow days per land. And this is a question, maybe, maybe you have an answer for this, but okay. So one property I've has 80 acres and I've just got it split down the middle with a high tensile wire, and I move my paddocks off there. And what I struggle with is how to keep track of each of those paddocks I move because those paddocks change every time I do it because I just do it by whatever I think they need at the time. I struggle with that a lot too. Um, the grazing chart's definitely probably more aimed at people in more brittle environments or arid environments where they have one short growing season and they usually only hit a place once or twice. So like my pastures are labeled with my big pastures are labeled like one, two, three through nine. And then within those, there's subsets. So I have one, a two, a three, a four, a. And what I found was that I also believe in randomness. I try not to subdivide on the same way every time just to mix up the timing. I don't think nature yes. is very, very um, pattern like that. So I, I do struggle. What I try to do is just make sure not get too tore up in the nitty gritty and make sure that as long as your total days on one half versus the other half are pretty darn close, I don't think it matters yes. if you gave them 100 extra yards up one side the first <laughs> yes. time and 100 extra back the second. Because I'm, I'm detail-oriented like that, too, and I was trying to think of a way. You know, my pastures, I could have I could have subdivided my whole little place up into a million pastures for all the, all the ways we cut it, but I just I tried to not get bogged down. I spent about a day thinking about the same thing, though. That's where I get bogged down in that. So I I need to do a little bit better job on on myself keeping track of all that. So that's really interesting. When you said you you put a fence down it, uh, did you just put one high tensile wire along the creek, or do you do multiple no. strands? So what's funny is that's why I say it's overbuilt. I grew up with high tensile. That's <laughs> all we had. We kept everything in with just two strands. The since it was a state project, uh, I think I have on the creek. I have three strands and I have way too many wooden line posts and I have oh, yes. the tension uh, indicators along the thing. So it's funny, the same guy that did the state project portion fenced some other stuff for me like property divisions. And on that it's fenced how I wanted. So I spaced my posts out, still did three strands, left the tension indicators out. But yeah, that's why I say the state's a little overbuilt. <laughs> and even the fencing oh, guy yeah. was like, yeah, you know, they don't want it. They don't want to see their money invested poorly. So yeah, it's three strand high tensile. It's built for Buffalo for sure. Well, well, good. That should alleviate problems in the future. Absolutely. And you put in um, pressurized three watering points. Is that what yeah, you so said? I put in three four ball waters along strategic points okay. in the farm that are usually my division points. So that whenever works. I divide paddocks, I usually give them all four balls, but just for the herd size. And I made sure I have enough pressure to get to all of them. But I could very well fence right over the top of them and, and you know, put two on one side of the fence, two on the other. Oh, we yeah. pretty much run everything as one herd. So generally they just get all four. They're good to go. I thought I'd saw, and I looked over here real quick at my other computer, and I thought you had a picture of your waters on media, social media, or on your website. But when I look through here, I'm not seeing there, it. So there I'm, is one on my website, I think, under the conservation tab. There you you have the the um, water and your concrete pad. 
Looks very nice. Um, lots of concrete there. Very yeah, nice. You're not kidding. So the funny part about that is none of those cows had ever stepped on concrete. So the calves were actually the that that season's calves were the first ones to venture out there, and then uh, to train them to drink, we had to for sure take the balls out of there and it even show oh, yes. there's water water in there. But it was it was a learning curve for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. It looks great. For your cattle, you mentioned you've kept the cows that were on the place when you bought it, but you have some very defined goals with your cattle and what you want them to do. So tell us a little bit about your your base herd, sure. and then your journey with that. Okay, so my base herd, the start of my base herd would have been, I bought six heifers, just six, out of the herd that was there. Um, and they okay. were raised there with that herd. Um, I do believe in epigenetics, and I do believe that the herd probably passes down um, some traits about what's on that piece, particular piece of land. Uh, and I very much, you could say my heifer development plan is right along the lines of I cut, copy, and paste from Burke Tiger, um, in that I don't prop my heifers up either. There's no special ration. I believe they should give, our, give me my first calf at 24 months uh, and then breed back on time. And through that, that was the start of my base herd. Um, and and that, that worked with some good success. I knew the herd that was there before had been managed in a similar, in a similar way. So I wasn't setting myself up for too much failure, but that was the start of my base herd. I brought in some more, uh, um, mama cows from some very good friends of mine that have a, a really nice beef operation in the state of North Carolina. They're similar age, both husband and wife work full time in the operation. That's pretty impressive anyway similar very similar mindset so i brought in light cattle from them um and then as well recently we brought in some more pairs from another gentleman in north carolina these are actually red angus pairs which are kind of uncommon in the in the on the east coast but they all stem back from um some tim oldie cows you know oldie occ cattle so i try to i try to really keep up with uh you know how people operate and how people run their cows i think uh, you, you know, you got to have cows that are similar, like raised in similar situations to the way you operate. So that's really the foundation herd that we have. So you've got some black Angus as well as some red Angus in there. Yeah, yep. Black Angus as well as red Angus. And we do have a mix of commercial and registered cows. I don't, I'm a, I'm a stats guy, so I I like to have the records and the, and the lineage on the registered side. And I do like some of the EPDs. I, I work very hard to understand all the math behind them. There's some that, sure, I look at, and there's some that, sure, I don't look at. But on the even on the commercial cattle side, I just try to make sure they come from herds and are bred to bulls that I believe are run the same way I would run my cows. Which the way I would, the way I run my cows, which is probably your next question, is uh, <laughs> I don't think I run my cows hard. That they're not under conditioned by any means. But I do expect the cow to work for me, not me to work for the cow. So, and I try to not be, I'm not necessarily a, a low input producer. I, I believe I'm a smart input producer. You know, I need, I know that I need to have enough protein in their diet for them to actually, you know, be able to process the forage. You know, there is, there is trade-offs and I do pencil that protein on a per pound basis and, and pencil inconvenience, stuff like that. So the cows do primarily forage themselves i think the great thing about north carolina is that we can grow grass for about 10 months of the year pretty darn good grass and we can grow forage for 12 months out of the year if we pre-plan and that's what i've tried to do um through some the uses of some annuals to be grazing as much as we can and we're moving forward even more in that uh and trying to reduce our reduce our hay that we do feed and the main reason we're trying to reduce that's not because i don't believe in feeding hay i, I like bringing in my fertility in that manner but just with the price of chemical fertilizer and diesel fuel, it's it's hard to pencil in, you know, two hundred dollar a ton hay or or whatever you're paying. So, yeah, and, and hey, we we went through a a drought last fall into winter. Um, I guess started midsummer. Not quite like two hours west of me. They're in a pretty good drought, but hay prices just shot through the roof. Luckily, we had enough in the barn, but. Man, I know a lot of people went out and bought some expensive hay. Yep. Now, before we jump into your forages just a little bit, are you buying bulls and bringing them in, or are you AI? Because I've heard some conversation that sounds like you may be a person that's AI. It's funny you say that. I'm actually, 
kind of a mix. The re main reason I don't own any bulls is because I believe in a pretty closed up breeding period and I don't really want to have to carry the expense of carrying that bull the other 10 months of the year. Um, right. So I, I do, I do, I do lease bulls and the leasing of bulls, it works out well for me or it's going to work out for well for me. This will be our first year leasing before the partnership herd had bulls that they would bring in. But I actually just penciled out leasing bulls today and luckily I am friends with a tight enough group of people that have a pretty good assortment of genetics i can kind of pick and choose what i want we're all like-minded producers so it works out well you know you got to have some networking so that's a yes. new that's a new thing we're going to try this year is bringing in a lease bull but on the ai side some of the cows that i have purchased i've purchased as unbred females and made a deal to keep the cows at the whatever respective farm they are at and have them ai'd to a bull of my choosing that's one way we did oh, it before yes. you know it just Everything comes with a convenience factor. I'm not a, you know, I have another job. I'm not a full-time farmer or rancher yet. So purchase the cow, you know, purchase cows at a at an open heifer price and then pay a, you know, a custom cattle fee. Like purchased them, paid a yardage fee for them to stay where they're at and then be delivered to me as bred females. And that's, that's the way we've done it before. That was through a friend who, you know, he AIs a lot of cows and he has a, it we just worked out well. He was going to do a bunch anyway, oh, yes. so it was a way to get it done. Yeah, excellent, excellent. I don't talk to too many people who AI. I grew up in the dairy industry where we AI'd everything. Yeah. And so so it's a little bit different now. I've got some neighbors that are registered breeders, and they, they do quite a bit of AI, you know, or at least they used to. I AI'd a few heifers, was it last year or the year before? out after not doing it for a couple of decades so so i'm easing back in i plan on AIing some again this year i i like AIing because i do really enjoy the genetic side of it but on the same sense i don't think there's any more breeding better breeding machine than a bull so if he can get it <laughs> if he can get it done you know out there without me putting up too much effort it's not a bad deal either um you did ask me about right, my goal, yeah. goal goals of my herd and i i do yeah I do feel like at some point I could see myself closing my herd or, or kind of closing it more. I need to have a bigger foundation before I can do that. But I do believe eventually my herd will be the best herd for my piece of land. And I kind of think that's a, oh, yes. a, you know, that's not going to be the best herd for a piece of land in Kansas. But with my forage base right. and in my topography, I'll have a herd that's it's pretty good. And I think I'll bring I'll bring maybe on the bull side some small pieces of other genetics in when I want them to accomplish goals. But my goal would be to yes. get my herd pretty uniform, uh, pretty low maintenance cattle. Excellent goals there. Um, jumping to your forages, tell us what your forages are there, what you have in place. Sure. So we actually, the project this year was we reseeded a lot of stuff. Um, I did take some, take some fields, gave them very long rest periods to see what was in the native seed bank. And I may have maybe I needed to give them more years, but I just couldn't economically make that happen. So I put in a blend of some endophyte free fescue, um, some orchard grass. That was about 70% of the makeup and then 20% red clover and 10% uh, a white or ladino clover. And that's the basis of our forage. And when we put a lot of that in, we put it in with a handful of cheap annuals. When I say cheap winter annuals, uh, throw in some barley or some wheat just to break the soil crust when we drilled it. Um, that's the majority of what we're grazing now. And that's, that is handled with kit gloves. I very much have been babying that grass to not overgraze it oh, and make yes. sure the roots get established. You know, when I pencil my perennials that I seed, it's not my goal to seed grass every year by any means. I hope to never have to see this if I treat it correctly. I think that is an advantage yes. of fescues. You can beat it up pretty hard, and it comes with its disadvantages. But that stuff will grow all through the winter here. We don't get real hard winters, so I can graze a lot of the winter, which is definitely a competitive advantage. Um, we do have a lot of annual ryegrass that's just kind of native. You know, there's some, there is a little bit of native grasses on my place. I, I really am working hard to see what comes back on its own, but. That's the that's the mostly what we have for perennial annuals. We do like to do a 
uh, a warm season. Sorry, that's what we have for perennial grasses. Um, we do like to do some warm season annuals to make it through what I call summer slump, which is my August-September time. Uh, and we've had some really good success with grazing some sorghum sedan grass. And we've just drilled that straight into the fescue. Um, that fescue goes dormant and that sorghum sudan grass, it just takes off. It harvests a lot of sunlight and it just seems to take off with no rain at all. And we'll graze it. You know, we try not to graze it to the stock and we've got anywhere from six grazings a summer to three grazings. Um, the cows seem to love it. I don't see any performance uh, issues with it, but we've, we've had good luck getting through that as well as we've had some fields that we've planted uh what i would just call bin run wheat you know just cheap wheat that around me is a lot of row cropping operations and you can pull wheat right out of the grain bin and drill it i'm not looking for you know small grain production i'm just grazing the wheat but that's actually what we calved on this winter spring um was we calved on green grass in february by calving on our wheat pastures so oh yes it made it much more pleasurable to not have to fight mud our ground doesn't freeze so that's what we've done. Traditionally, we've done that to get through February and March and really get the grass a head start um, to put them on that wheat. It's tough to get enough roughage in them for them not to be so loose, but the cows are, seem really happy and it puts any condition you lost throughout the winter on them really quick. Um, and I say winter, it's still, I guess, winter, but February in North Carolina is pretty mild compared to February in most places. Do you think as you look forward to the coming winter, I know we're months off, but it'll be here. How do you think that's going to affect your hay needs? So we do plan on stockpiling a couple pastures to have winter grazing, as well as, and we'll get to it on the overgrazing section, but when I did feed some hay last year, I fed it in a kind of a atypical manner for the East Coast, and that's a tool that, man, I've had, it might just be a anomaly, but I've had so much success with that when I do feed hay, I may be feeding hay very early in the fall when it's nice and dry and my, my hay feeding might be to let a bunch of pastures really take off in the fall we kind of have a dual growing season to to stockpile enough for the winter so when it is kind of rainy and dreary and you would normally rut up your place i can just be out grazing so my timing might be it, i i i'm thinking my timing is going to be very atypical i think i'll be feeding hay when the grass is really turning on in the fall um, so I can stockpile enough forages to get me through December, January to then hit my winter annuals, February, March. Um, and there's just a lot of advantage to me uh, in feeding hay in that manner. But my goal is to feed less and less hay every year. What do you, how do you see the future going for your farm or what are your plans as you move forward? And I know you've covered some more or less hay, more grazing getting your cattle genetics but when you look at your farm just overall do you what's some goals in mind i have two two major goals part of the seeding of my place and getting the grass base up is i really want to figure out what my true carrying capacity and potential is on well-managed land in north carolina i want to do that because i want to maximize without hurting the land it while regenerating the land i want to maximize everything i can get out of that piece of land and have a very scalable model that I can then, before I ever go try to expand or scale up, um, is my goal. Oh, yes. Because the second part of my goal is to scale up to the portion that the farm can support one labor unit full-time. I know that we operate on about, oh okay I would say one-seventh of a labor unit, two-sevenths, when I really keep track of how many hours it takes to manage our cattle herd. Um, but I want to scale to one labor unit because at that point, I would, there's some enterprise other enterprises i would like to bring in and stack on top of that to get even more out of the land i do think sheep are a very good fit for this climate and there is a large market for lamb and mutton in the charlotte metro area believe it or not you know i i do i feel like if i could if, if the farm could get to the point where it could support a full labor unit and you had somebody there at all times that could support some other enterprises that are a little more hands-on whether it be some pasture poultry or some sheep or just the logistics of taking those things to market. It's at least a, an avenue I want to explore. Just as you look towards the future, you know, we added hair sheep to, to our operation. It's been a number of years ago. I guess almost 10 years ago, we added sheep to it. And we wish we'd done it a lot sooner. Yeah. Um, we, we've been really happy with 
how we're doing with the sheep enterprise. Uh, one thing we're not doing is doing direct to consumer yet. Yep. We've been selling them just on the commodity markets. So, uh, Taylor, let's get back to that bell or feeding hay. So for our overgrazing section, we're going to take a deeper dive into practice of yours. And you alluded to it a while ago, but what is our practice today that we're going to talk about? Yeah, so I guess I probably first heard about this practice. I'm I'm a very avid reader and I spend a lot of time in airplanes and I do a lot of reading and um, I don't know if it was a book or a podcast from out west or, or what it was if it was ranching for profit for profit school but the whole bale grazing concept which for people that aren't familiar would be setting out a set of bales so in my case it was 40 bales out in the field and then basically letting the cows into those bales incrementally so it's kind of putting your hay out for a period of time so I got married just recently in November, and my wife and I got married at our farm, and there was one field. Oh, that is exciting. Yeah, there was one field I wanted to look particularly nice for the wedding because um, we were getting married in the field. So it was really going to mess up my rotation, so I had to figure out how to get through that. Uh, you know, keep keep the missus happy, and I'm everybody's happy. Yes, there's priorities, and you have to make sure you get those right. Exactly. So I had some ground that... When we cleared for the water pads, I could tell the, round, the ground was just different than the other ground. It never grew great grass. It seemed very seemed very fungal dominant, not bacteria dominant. Had a lot of rocks when we cleared, and I thought this is a great this is a great place. It was near a water trough, so simultaneously I could tell we were headed towards that micro droughty area. So I needed five weeks. I was I knew I was going to be out of grass unless I went and grazed the the wedding field. <laughs> So we set out 24 tons of hay, which was 40 bales for us. Um, I set it in a pattern. I used Google Earth to kind of plan out how I'd even set it. Um, and then we, we let the cows in basically two times a week. They got four bales, um, which was different than how we had traditionally fed hay when we had fed it. It had been three times a week. They got three bales. I had listened to a lot of stuff about bale grazing about you really kind of have to let the cows you kind of have to force the cows to clean up all the hay or they'll waste a lot of it, mm -hmm. which they did. I was oh, yes. I was very happy. And now I don't think it's necessarily wasted. It just goes as fertility into the ground. But yeah, right. we kind of had to teach them. So we worked away from the water trough. So we never back fenced. And we set the, set the bales out in strips, basically. We set one main line to pull poly wire lines off of. And then every time we would take one down... Uh, we would just put the next one up. So it was very easy. It would take oh, yeah. take longer to drive out there on the four-wheeler than it would to pull up the next fence. We did. We set all the bales as you would pick them up with a skid steer, so round side up, you know, so they would shed any water. Um, but we would push them over. Uh, we'd just push them over and then pull the net wrap off when we would feed. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it worked pretty well. We did in a really small area. The total area was only five acres. So five acres... Five weeks, that was like 4.8 tons per acre. Um, the University of Kentucky has some really good information on their YouTube channel about bale grazing on the East Coast because it's not a super common thing in that our hay, you know, we have a much more humid environment. And looking back, what I did would be considered very ultra high density. And I probably only got away with it because oh. we were in such a drought. I probably would have mucked up, you know, pugged my pastures or mucked them up pretty bad. Oh, yeah. But... I knew there had to be some cost savings because we, we ran the tractor one time in five weeks. And all that was, was I don't make hay at my, at my farm. We get hay delivered. So rather than every time bringing hay out to the field and, and running a tractor for an hour, we then ran a tractor once for two hours to set all the bales. We just, rather than bring the semi to the barnyard, we just drove it straight into the field. I ran all the numbers and basically over five weeks time, I saved... 240 bucks, you know, that's including, now I included like going out and my, my labor and what it costs to operate the four wheeler versus what it costs to operate the tractor. And I have about the smallest oh, tractor yes. you can use, uh, to handle bales, but I saved about 240 bucks over five weeks. I saved six bucks a bale feeding that way, which is, is real savings money not spent. And, and that did not include, I, you know, I can, I can, I can get way off in the weeds calculating how much I probably saved in manure and manure redistribution of not feeding in bale rings and oh, spreading yes. manure but 
I didn't, I didn't even include that in the calculation. What I was expecting was that maybe this, you know, this fall, I might start seeing the benefits. And I actually started seeing the benefits almost instantaneously where all the bales were set, you know, the bales were a mix of fescue and some ryegrass, but I pretty immediately got crazy, some really crazy growth of, of grass seed. And that's some of my, you know, I was really trying to get as much fertility into that ground through, through the fertility out of the bales, through the fertility out of the bales passing through the cow and just their urine and manure in general. And that whole little section of my farm has just taken off. So now I just, now I feel like if I have to feed hay, uh, if the weather will allow, and I say that, be, I say that because I, I do think you can't put that type of density on your land if it's super muddy, but I, right. I will use this as a tool to kind of regenerate different little portions of the, of the farm that may not be up to snuff on the fertility side. So it worked great for me. Uh, and I know you'll ask me about my social media accounts, but we did work hard to document all that on Instagram. And we kind of are continually documenting that every time I happen to shoot video or do a story of that area, I try to show people, you know, I was playing hide and seek. The grass was so tall the other day. I was playing hide and seek with a puppy out there. Like it, it oh, yes. took off. It was, it's quite amazing. I know where we've fed and not really doing bell grazing, a little bit different environment, obviously, but you know, you get that seed from that hay and you get some species out there that's not in your pasture. And you're like, oh, that came from the hay. And then the dark green of that gr future growth, you'll have to put a drone up so you can see it so nicely then. Absolutely. You know, what's also kind of neat is I checked the, uh, you know, I use Google Earth and it just happened that Google Earth shot a new satellite image of the farm when we were, oh, yes. when we were halfway through. So I have a really cool, like, you know, they probably won't shoot another satellite image for 10 years. So nobody can say I didn't bale graze. There is gridded bales just oh. sitting out there, uh, much to the chagrin oh, yes. of most people. But yeah, it um, we've documented. I do have a drone and I think I will put it up. I wish I would have had the drone uh, before. So I could have got some really good shots of how poor that little piece of land was, but oh yeah, I expect it. I expect big things out of it. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that's going to work well for you in the future. Before we move on, just a couple of, um, real practical questions. Maybe you, you set them out there and, and you just set the bell out and then whenever you fed them, you tipped them over and pulled the net wrap off at that point. Yeah. Or did you do that all in the beginning? Nope. Nope. You're right. I set them out just as you would Okay. Stack them, you know, and I did that for water shedding. Right. They, they were all net wrapped and they wrapped right. pretty tight. In case we had any rain, it would, that would shed more water than if they were flat side up. So right. it doesn't take much, like I'm not an extremely strong person and my wife would do it too. And we go out there and we'd flip four bales over and peel the net wrap. And that, that just helped the bale hold this quality better than if we laid them on our side, I kind of believed. And cows figured, oh, yeah, cows I, I figured agree. it out quick and move the, move the next line over. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, how difficult is that to flip a bell over? And to be honest, I don't know that I've ever flipped a bell over on purpose. I do sometimes flip one over accidentally when I'm using a tractor, but I don't know that I've ever just tried to flip one over. It's not that so. it's not that bad. You can get them rocking pretty <laughs> easy and they'll go whatever way you want. <laughs> yeah. I, I very good. I honestly think it's easier to tip one over than it is to roll it. You know, they always get that, oh, they, yes. they always get that flat yeah. side. So rolling's not easy, but just oh, tipping over 90 yeah. degree corner is not that, not that hard. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I've just, I've just never done that. Yep. And yeah, I always try and use a hillside to help me with any rolling I'm going to have to do manually. Yeah. You got to use gravity. It's free too. Yes, exactly. Well, Taylor, excellent discussion thus far. But it's time we move into our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our first question is, what's your favorite grazing grass-related book or resource? My favorite books, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divide this. I've read all the books. I have all the books. Uh, if anybody would like to borrow them, call me up. I'll loan them out. Um, <laughs> but one of my favorites is, is, is Kick the Hay Habit by Jim Garrish. Uh, it's one that I've, I've dog-marked a lot of the pages, and I go back and pull it open. A lot and that's I think that one resonates so much with me that because I can really take that stuff and go pen and paper and that's how my mind works I go pen paper can see the savings yep we're going that direction 
another set of books that I have not heard many people talk about. I've listened to a lot of podcasts with this gentleman, but there's a guy named Dale Strickler out of Kansas who, who runs cows on sub-irrigated pasture, and he wrote The Drought Resilient Farm, Managing Pasture, and Re Restoring Your Soils, which are they read almost more like a coffee table book. They have amazing illustrations. Mm -hmm. I got his drought-resistant book, yep. and I haven't read that one yet. I've got it. It's on my to-read list. But his other book, um, Managing Pasture, yep. I think it's the name of it. I love that book as a reference. Absolutely. Just going back, and you mentioned a coffee table book. Yeah, it's one. I, I read it almost front to back when I got it. But yep. now it's something I just pick up and I look at and I go through if I'm trying to find something or if I'm just a little bored. I love that book. Absolutely. So the third one he just put out was Restoring Your Soil, which honestly should have went out before oh, okay. the other two. But it's it's the exact same type of book, and it's just as good. And it's kind of a conversation starter. If you leave it on a coffee table and have people over, somebody will pick it up and flip through it and ask you about those crazy things. Oh, yes. Very good. I did not realize there was a third book, so I'm going to blame you, Taylor, when I go tell my wife I have a new book to buy. You can blame me. <laughs> okay. The, uh, the, uh, the resource that I've used that I don't know how common it is either is there is a website. I think it's a play on words. Um, everybody's heard of the website Investopedia, which is an investing type website. It's an encyclopedia of investment stuff. There's one called Feedopedia, F-E-E-D-opedia. Oh. And it's a conglomeration of about every white page and university study of different forage types throughout the world. So you can Google anything. For instance, I fought with bull thistle a lot or Canadian thistle. And I at one time realized that once I... If I could get it out of its, um, if I could kill it, start killing it, and could get it a little, a little spongy, my cows would eat it. They would fight over it. Oh yes. Yeah. And then you look it up and you realize it, on average, has more protein than alfalfa, right? So, um, oh. it's kind of what I use to try to help learn the different forage types that were out there and what they may or may not have, you know, nutritionally. I'm not saying you should feed your cows all these things, but it's helped me a ton. Uh, you know, there's so many studies even outside of the U.S. with some feed types that are not extremely common with us. And I have used that one. It's a little difficult and sometimes you have to use the slang term or sometimes you have to Google the slang term to find the scientific term of the plant you're looking for and then put that back in the website. Um, but I've had pretty good luck finding nutritional, you know, facts about, about every type of forage in there. Very good. I pulled it up right here. I I have never looked at that website, so I'm excited to look through it sure you came with your a game on resources <laughs> i spend a lot of time in airplanes uh, with my other career and you need to have you can either watch movies or you can teach yourself something so that's what i choose to do yeah very good moving on to our second question what is your favorite tool to use on your farm my favorite tool is probably observation and boots on the ground, but that's not exactly how you ask the question you're asked you're asked the question of what could you not live without and i would say um, that would be the four wheeler. Uh, it is the cheapest piece of machinery I have to operate and I don't have much machinery at all, but I do know exactly what it costs to operate per hour. Every piece of machinery that is on the farm is the cheapest piece of machinery I have to operate. Um, it increases my efficiency, uh, exponentially, you know, I could walk everywhere, but I'm not, I can't, you know, I don't have enough time in the day. Yes. With some slight modifications, it's just become the workhorse for everything. It's got Oh, yeah. You know, it's got every fence. We run all our fence with it. It becomes a ladder to put up the cell cams, to monitor the water troughs, to get them out of the reach of the cows. It It's what we use if we do any type of little bit of spraying. If we spray fence lines, it becomes the herbicide sprayer. It becomes the broadcast seeder. It is, it's the workhorse. We couldn't live without it for sure. Very good. Very good. What would you tell someone just getting started? The same piece of advice that I heard from somebody and uh, thankfully I, I listened was you can't wait too long to start on this stuff, but taking your time and, and observing can probably help you navigate around some, some large financial hits, which will maybe help keep your startup cost low. So observe, and I, and I have that listed as observe what the land gives you for free, um, how the land uses the water that's on it, you know, where it stores it, where the grass grows. 
that'll help you. Um, the second piece I have is find your competitive advantage. I think every different topography and piece of land has its has some type of competitive advantage. For instance, ours is our climate and the fact that we can grow grass 10, 11, 12 months out of the year if we manage things correctly. And growing grass doesn't necessarily cost me much. Um, it's a lot cheaper than running a mixer wagon. So you have to con- you have to find your competitive advantage and then you have to not be afraid to exploit that. Oh, and then the last thing is is just working on your business more than you work in the business. You know, it's it's not glamorous to sit in an office and, and run a pad and a pencil, but it's a lot more glamorous than losing losing the business because you didn't didn't yes. forward plan. So try to find a balance of both for sure, but that's there's a lot of times I'd rather just be driving fencing staples into a post than running numbers, but it does let me sleep a lot better at night knowing that I'm moving I'm moving in the the direction I want to move, you know, financially or as a business. So, and, and I guess that goes both ways. If, if you don't know how to work on the business, don't be scared. You know, you might have to pay a little bit for some consulting or to learn the skills to do it, but you can't afford not to is, is really where we're at in this day and right. ag, day and yeah. age in agriculture. This isn't 1973 anymore. Diesel fuel is not 25 cents a gallon. So you oh, yes. can't afford to just go burn it aimlessly. But yeah, those are the three pieces of advice I have for for startups. Oh, wonderful advice. And lastly, Taylor, where can others find out more about you? Well, we have a website uh, for the farm. (laughs) And within that website is links to our social media. So we do have, the farm has an Instagram account, which we are very active on. And we have a Twitter account, which we're a little less active on. And then I also have my personal accounts. But the the website would be ridgeviewlandandcattle.com. The Instagram would be Ridgeview Land and Cattle, as well as the Twitter, I think, is it's just Ridgeview LC. Um, and then all my personal stuff, which you can get back to the farm, would just be Taylor C. Moyer. So T-A-Y-L-O-R-C-M-O-Y-E-R. But we are very active within reason for the farm account. We, you know, there are some days that are personal days and we're out there and we don't want to have the phone stuck everywhere. But I feel like... Um, Nobody can be a better advocate for agriculture and my yes. farm as I can be. So I work hard to explain the things we do um, at our farm. Uh, my wife does a great job. She's very skilled as well uh, with social media. So we have fun with it. We do not take it too serious. You know, you'll get some informative soil health type videos, and then you'll get a goofy video of how we dress like Australians in the summer because it's 110 degrees. And why would you not wear short shorts <laughs> out there uh, and a big hat to keep the sun off your, you know, your ears. Yes. Um, but we love to interact with folks and we've made some, I think for her and I both, we're, we're both raised in, uh, you know, agrarian type families. And, and what we found is we've made such personal connections and friends through all out the U S uh, even have some, some followers from Australia um, and we just, they're like-minded folks or people with similar interests in agriculture and soil. And those are like truly concrete interests that I think as humans are, you know, very much ingrained in us. So it's been some of our, they seemingly, you know, seem to be, have the best connections with some of those people. So reach out and we'd love to talk to folks. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Taylor, I've really enjoyed conversation today. Uh, you shared a lot with us, and I think our listeners will enjoy. Absolutely. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers, and every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I've enjoyed today's conversation and hope you've enjoyed it as well. If you would like to continue on the conversation, visit the Grazing Grass community at community.grazinggrass.com or go to thegrazinggrass.com and click on the community link. You can find the Grazing Grass podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So if you haven't subscribed to us on YouTube, we encourage you to go over and subscribe. We will be releasing episodes over there. We also have a lot of episodes we haven't released that we're going to get over there as well. And if you find something valuable, please share it. We appreciate you sharing about our podcast and getting the word out. Are you a grass farmer? Would you be interested in sharing about your journey? If so, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. 
There's a short form you fill out, and we'll be in touch. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. Thank you for listening. If you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest link. We are looking for guests for this year. So if you're interested, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support the show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is through our Patreon. If you'll go over to grazinggrass.com and click on support, you'll see our links there. And that lists some ways you can support it. But you can click on the Patreon link, and for a small amount of month, you help support this podcast so we're able to put out more episodes, and we appreciate that. Also, there is a second level there. If you're a beginning farmer or just getting started and you're wanting more assistance, there is a start grazing grass level there that you could subscribe to and gain more information. No matter what you choose to do, we appreciate you listening. Keep on grazing grass.